it, what it is is his parents, you know, try, they end up on the sideline trying to get their own kind of unmet needs met. So usually the most traumatized ones are the ones that get the loudest, you know. We're going to go out on the field. We're going to score as many goals as we can. We're going to have fun. Oh, Becky, a well placed. Today we're going to spend some time talking about parents of athletes. There's a good reason you started playing sports and got to the level you did in the system you did because of your parents. They signed you up, then they drove you to practice and to tournaments, they were in the stands, they maybe were even your coach at one point. A lot of your success can be contributed to them in some way or another, probably. So there's a lot of reasons to praise them, to be grateful for them. And a lot of athletes make that very clear. If you listen to any average Heisman Trophy speech or the pro athlete that buys his mom a car after his first paycheck, they made sacrifices and cheered and supported through it all. But maybe we should think deeper and consider the sometimes problematic role of parents in sports. Freud would love this episode right now. Um, when you think of the problematic sports parent, you might conjure up this image of the quintessential screamer at Little League who gets in the umpire's face and an hour later there's a video of YouTube on it. It's that exaggerated image of the crazy parent in sport who clearly has a damaging relationship to the game and who no doubt sours the game in turn for his or her kid. That extreme is an extreme, but the underlying idea there that there's something fundamentally toxic and or troublesome about the parent-kid relationship in sports so many times, that's not extreme. In fact, this under-the-radar, unhealthy parent-athlete relationship is very widespread and so normalized today that we don't even realize the ways that it impacts athletes, parents, and entire team cultures. Things like depression and anxiety that many athletes experience that we're finally talking about, those things are forcing us to look at sports parents, not just the screamer parents, with a different sort of eye. There's a lot of entry ways into this conversation if we think about run along. Um, for example, many athletes go on to become parents of athletes. And how that former athlete ends up feeling about sports, the relationship they develop with sport, is going to obviously impact their relationship with their kid as athlete, and in turn, that kid's own relationship with sport. The cycle continues. So that was how I first thought about this topic, but then I talked to our expert guest you'll hear today, and I was like, wow, no, all parents need to start thinking about these things. So who is this expert? His name is Seth Taylor, and Seth Taylor is what you might call a, quote, sideline culture expert. Taylor is a content creator for Yanni Training, an organization and brand that exists to, as their website says, 
quote, revolutionize the youth sports landscape to become one that encompasses more joy, peace, and love by showing athletes, parents, and coaches how to take greater responsibility for the development of healthy individual and cultural identities. In addition to the resources he has developed for Iani training, Taylor is a writer, a life coach, and a keynote speaker for Major League Soccer on issues of identity and work-life balance in athletes. He is the author of On Frame, Exploring the Depths of Parenting in the World of Youth Soccer. And so how I connected with him, I was at the United Soccer Coaches Convention in Baltimore, saw a couple of really fascinating sessions that Taylor was going to be leading, and I knew he had to come on the podcast. So I got to pick Taylor's brain about issues related to the parent-athlete relationship, and here's some insights into how to tackle the toxic sports parent problem. Well, my name is Seth Taylor, and I am uh, the, my official title is I'm the director of content for Iani Training, so, uh, which is started by Patrick Iani, a uh, former MLS player, and we are basically dedicated to uh, culture change. Like, we are, we are trying to create a different, we're trying to, to recreate a healthier emotional platform for player development um, and you know, for child development, we're trying to bring child development, healthy child development, into the world of youth sports as much as possible. So, it's so important. And yeah. yeah, can you just talk about maybe the, the kinds of work you guys do with that, this idea of culture change? Yeah. Well, we're creating resources. So at, at this point, what we've been doing is we we do do one-on-one work with with athletes. We do one-on-one work with parents. Um, we do workshops, and we've also created. Uh, our main thing right now is we created a, a, a resource called, the, it's, a, it's a book actually called On Frame, and it's exploring the depths of parenting in the world of youth soccer, but what it is is a therapeutic experience for parents, and what we're trying to do is get that into soccer clubs. We're trying to take it to, our goal is that every single parent in America that has a kid playing soccer goes through that, um, because we're, we're looking at, we talk about culture change, it's very much kind of like how do you steer an aircraft carrier, you know? Mm-hmm. and. And we've been looking at not only because you know, we have a pretty good sample set now. We're not getting better, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so if you start with just our performance issues at the highest levels on the men's side, okay, and the women's side starting to have this kind of interesting effect in the world, which is you know we're still awesome. But I'm looking at it like it has to for me. There's a certain quality of awesome that I'm looking for. I'm looking for a, a healthy awesome, where joy and passion are the main thing that characterize what we're doing. Um, and you see more of that on the women's side. Um, the men's side is really, really, really suffering from that. There's a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of fear. Um, the game is very fear-based in so many ways. And so we're trying to, we're looking at that, and we're just, if that's the fruit on the tree, we're looking at the roots in the ground and going, what, what's happening here? So our whole, our, our, I mean, the, the biggest, you know, Pat talks about it like a river. Like we're saying, we got this big river flowing, and we're trying to introduce a large enough event into that river to change the flow of it. So we need a boulder, not, not pebbles, <laughs> like right? And, well, that's what most of us are doing, right? Conventions like this are fascinating because we're all sitting around just throwing pebbles, you know? Hey, just keep <laughs> chucking pebbles. And we, we you know, we, we go, what Pat and I are trying to do is how do you introduce a boulder? And, and we feel like waking parents up is the way to do that. So one of our, one of our taglines is transformation is greater than education. Because people want to say parent education, parent education. Parenting is far too deep to talk about in that form, you know? Educating parents can be slightly helpful. Yeah. Transforming parents is it can create a massive shift. 
And so what we're trying to do is create a type of awakening is probably the best term you can use. We want parents to start to have a profound sense of what their, how their relationship with their kids in sports is created, developed, how it's affecting them. We want parents to become deeply aware of themselves and what they bring to the sideline when they're there, you know, and how that's being received and around them. Um, we want soccer clubs to stop telling parents, here's what you do, here's what you don't do. You know, I mean, I mean, tossing pebbles. That's something that's so profoundly deep. I'm going to assume you're not a mom yet. No. Right? When you're, it's, it's a very, I'm a dad. I have two kids. You know, I coached for 20 years, but I, I, there's nothing deeper. There's nothing deeper than, yeah, the, it, and, and so it, t- like what those parents are experiencing on the sideline is, is layered in levels of consciousness. And here we are in sports culture just trying to just, you know, tell them, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, as if they're, you know, it's, it, it's that simple when it's just simply not. It's not a simple thing at all. So we're going to, we're, we're aiming at that, and we created this resource that is designed to get into the unconscious. Okay, so we want parents to have a perspective. It's meditative in many ways. I would call it psycho-spiritual. It's not just psychology. It's a psycho-spiritual experience where we're helping parents learn to observe themselves, experience themselves. Um, there's, there, it, there's, so there's activities that you run through it. It's almost a journaling, a meditative journaling experience. Um, but it's very digestible. It's actually enjoyable in a lot of ways. And we've been testing this. We've got it in about five different clubs right now. Um, we just got it in a big club in, in uh, Garden City out here in New Jersey. And, and uh, Chicago Fire Academy, it's across the board that all their parents go through it. Um, having, you know, hoping to talk to some few of the MLS academies that are we're starting to have some good conversations, but we're testing it and it's working. I mean, it has a capacity for massive transformation. And retain, retain you know, People have been like, well, what if players don't get competitive? What's happening is we're seeing that that the effect that it's having is changing the child's relationship with the game because you're changing your parents. The parents are, are kind of opening up to a new, new level of understanding and consciousness that causes them to back up and, and uh, experience their kids differently. And so kids' relationship with the game becomes a healthier one and then... It makes, it makes a lot of sense when you think about how huge the parent presence is in sports, right? They're the huge. ones driving you to practice. Yeah. They're the ones driving you to tournaments and yeah. God knows where. They're the ones that sign you up for sports initially. Mm. And they are the biggest voice in a lot of ways for, for youth athletes and yeah. just kids in general. Yeah, by far. Yeah. By far. I mean, there's, and that was the thing when I was coaching. It was frustrating at times because you're trying to have this impact on these kids, but you can't. You, I could spend, there's no possible way you can compete with the level of influence a parent has on a child. But part of, the biggest part of that too is that by the time they get to me, I, I'm coaching a U14 team, the damage is done. You know, mm-hmm. the, the truth is, and a lot of people don't know this, but we put our kids in organized sports far too young. Right? It's not healthy. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, the psychology research has been pretty clear for a while that, that, that until they're about 12, they're really not ready for it. Their identity development, their brain development, putting them in or, that level of organized structure and then placing the, the love on the sideline, which is the only task of a child that's five, six, seven years right. old. All they, they're trying to do is unconsciously develop a sense of who they are based in the unconditional love of mom and dad. That's it, right? And so they're trying to, to develop that foundation 
And what we do is put that love on the sideline and then start creating this feedback loop according to this very structured thing, which is totally adverse to the brain development of the human child. So, right. so we do this and, and we disrupt so we disrupt their identity and then we, we watch them form a relationship with the game that's tied to their relationship with the love. And then the game becomes about earning love. Wow. And so for yeah. most players, their relationship with the game, even though they want to play, they actually hated it as well. It's a love-hate relationship they have with the game because there's a there's an earning love thing happening on an unconscious level. That's so interesting. Yeah. And I guess the way I started thinking about the parent issues uh, in the scope of this podcast is, you know, we talked to a lot of athletes, retired athletes. They were, you know, maybe on the Olympic level. They've reached the, the top levels of their sport, and now they're parents. They have kids. Their kids are in sports, yeah. and I'm interested in your work. Have you seen a correlation between the level of success or the type of athlete that a parent was back mm. in their heyday, yeah. and maybe the type of sports parent they end up becoming? Yeah. Um, you know, how does is it the elite level athlete that becomes the screamer with the clipboard that's right. up and down the right. sideline, yeah. or is it? Yeah. Are they more likely to be the ones to sit back and kind of let things happen? In my experience, the elite ones tend to step back a lot mm -hmm. more because there's that kind of knee-jerk reaction to the way they were raised. You know, right. I'm not going to be that. We get some, there's some outliers. I mean, like, what's I, I, a good example is what LeBron James is all over social media, right? How he's, the whole brawny phenomenon of his son, which is not a healthy thing, you mm -hmm. know? And no knock on LeBron James, he's an incredible person, but it's not a healthy thing that, that you know, he's there on that sideline all the time, right there, every second, every time. Um, it may create a great basketball player, but it's not going to create someone who has a healthy relationship with the game, you know, and, and he'll never be what his dad, dad is. It's, that's not going to happen. But, and, and to answer your question further, when you talk about the elite athletes, I see them tend to, to kind of step back. The ones who turned on into their crazies <laughs> on the sideline are the ones that never quite made it where they wanted to. You know, they were okay, but then, you know what I mean? Yeah. I say someone like, I just want her to be, have the opportunities I never had, you know, and that right. kind of thing. Yeah, and, we hear this idea of like living through your right. child, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's, and that's what creates this thing. You know, mm -hmm. I was talking to the dad of a, of a guy that's on the U.S. national team, and he was just like, yeah, I, I, was, I was one of those dads. Because we were chatting about his son struggling with some stuff and, and some, some depression, some anxiety. And he's just like, and his dad was, and, and he had told me, he's like, oh, my parents were great. And I go, yeah, but the evidence is here. Where there's smoke, there's fire. The evidence is here that there was some real, but his parents were great, but they didn't understand that they were part of a normalized trauma. It's normal for us to go when they're five years old, six years old, to throw them out there on the field. And, and Pat and I, Yanni training is not about trying to stop that. The system is what it is. I get it. We're not going to stop every child from playing soccer at that age tomorrow but what we can do is wake the parents up so that there's a totally different level of consciousness regarding what's actually happening right and that's the goal so yeah. in your mind's eye what do you think is an ideal age for 12 12 yeah. okay. for organized youth sports uh -huh. you know i mean i lived in africa when i was a little boy for a little while mm. and we had a sandlot and we played on the sandlot every day and it was it was crazy i was the only white kid in the neighborhood there's just it was, it was a little sandlot surrounded by garbage dump and we'd walk up there after school every day, and we'd play for four hours. And never awesome. get home, mom would be like, awesome. how was, what were you doing? <laughs> Playing soccer? Was it fun? Yep. You know, and she, and so there was never my, and that's, I think the world develops a relationship with the game in that way, mm -hmm. you know? It's similar to the way we develop our relationship, well, at least we used to develop our relationship with things like basketball and baseball, like when, you know, like when I was a kid in the backyard with my friends, hitting the wiffle ball, you know? Um, but it's, 
you know, the money obviously is infecting all sports at a level right now that we've never seen before. Um, and it's causing that burnout. And we're seeing people, kids quit soccer at a, at a level we've never seen either. And, and Pat and I are very passionate about returning joy to the game. So when I talk to clients of mine that I work with that are athletes, you know, and I'll, I'll do 12 sessions, you know, with someone one-on-one and work with them. And then at the end, like when I check in with them once in a while, how's your joy levels? What are you experiencing? And I want to hear, uh, if they're telling me I'm having a blast, I'm having fun, I'm playing the best ball I've ever played, and there's joy just kind of coming out of them, you know, that passion is such a really powerful fuel source for training, for movement. Like, you can get so much better when you're fueled by passion instead of fear, anxiety, anger, right. that kind of stuff. Definitely. And in talking about patterns, I hate to kind of divide by gender, but I'm curious as to if there are any certain issues you see with moms versus dads. Oh, uh, you know. There, or is it just parent? You know, I think it is. Parent. I think it's just parents. You see it expressed a little differently. I tend, I tend to see, um, you know, it, it might just be parents. Yeah. That's what I, you know, I, it's a good answer. Yeah, it might just be parents. I, you know, it's, I, see, I see girls, female athletes, and male athletes embody this stuff a little differently. Mm-hmm. To be honest with you, there is, a, there is a marked difference in how boys and girls carry this stuff. Um, but in the parents, it's just, and it's what it is, and, and this is why in my talk tomorrow, I'm going to get really into depth of what it is, is his parents, you know, try, they end up on the sideline trying to get their own kind of unmet needs met. So usually the most traumatized ones are the ones that get the loudest, you know? Right. Yeah. It's, it's a very profound thing. Unfortunate to hear, but it, it makes sense when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, what are the sorts of conditions on a given team that, that might happen that are likely to create more parent drama or maybe cultivate a yeah. crazy parent? Yeah. Like that? Well, think of it like this. Think of it in layers of consciousness. Okay. So we talk about right now, you and I are awake. We're in the waking state of consciousness, right? And if you fall asleep, you're in the sleeping state of consciousness. If you, if you understand that even in the waking state, there are multiple levels of consciousness, there's, it's not, life's not so much about what you believe or don't believe as much as it is about what you see or don't see. And so uh, when you have a coach that is unconscious, right? So a lot of coaches come out of their playing days, they don't know what to do with their life, so they go and they coach, and because they have no idea who they are, and they've got this kind of this kind of trauma that was done to them, and then that trauma sits inside them and it starts to express itself in their coaching. That's a recipe for disaster and, and drama on a team, right? Because the parents get critical and they start, their stuff gets kicked up, and they start doing that. Sometimes it's just a numbers game. You'll get lucky. I coached for 20 years. I got lucky. I had teams where where there was a really healthy group of parents and just a few toxic ones, a few bad apples. But usually the good apples, kind of, if you have, a, you know, I got 14 good, you know, sets of good parents and I got two bad ones, they'll kind of, the good will take them. But then I had one situation with the exact opposite. Where you just for some reason, you have a bunch of really unhealthy people that are on a team and it creates almost a collective kind of field, you know? Yeah. It is incredibly low vibration where you're just like, oh my gosh, how do I do this? Mm-hmm. And I had a couple of those. And of course that would trigger me and then I'd end up lashing out and getting mad at some parent or getting in some huge thing. And I mean, I, I did things in my coaching days before I kind of discovered my own path to, to health, you know, mm-hmm. um, that I'm still, I still look back and I deeply regret. The drama is just too intense. The energy. Was and I just think too the nasty. drama manifests in a couple different ways. Of course, we have this 
explicit idea that pops in our head of maybe the parent that's yelling that you're like everybody else is looking at this guy like wow this is inappropriate for this setting but then you also have the parents the quiet types uh that are sending emails to the coach, emails, texting the coach, like, this is why kids should be out there, et cetera, et cetera. Practice gets over and that kid gets in a car. And I, as a coach, I can't, no matter how healthy I am, I can't do anything about mm-hmm. that. That's why we need to wake the parents up. I need something that gets in the car with them. That can, if that, if I got a kid, if I can know that that kid gets in the car after practice and that car is a safe place to be, where they get in instead of having to give a report every time, how was practice, was it good, was it bad, how do we fix the bad, how do we... And we cheer the good. How do we do these things? If they can get in that car and there's just a safe place saying, how are you feeling? Mm-hmm. Man, if we could do that, we could. I could win a state championship. <laughs> give, me, give me 11 players who, whose parents are like that, right. and, I'll, and I don't even care how good they are. We'll win a state championship. You know what I mean? Yeah, which just speaks to how huge the influence is that you, that you, keep, you keep emphasizing. And I, it really feels like this work has – is maybe newer or that this space hasn't been explored that much and why do you think that is you're asking really good questions i gotta say you're like i'm gonna keep that part i'm not editing that out no these are really good questions now they're all really deep questions which i could go i could literally talk about this for two hours but it's it's um it's interesting because i I had a meeting with the red bulls guys this morning the guy said i think that I can't say it in Scottish accent. I was like, but he, he said, he said, I think this is where we're heading in the next decade. And, um, and Pat and I have talked about that because every time we present these ideas to people, they resonate. They go, holy cow, this is so important. This is so needed. They read on frame and they go, wow, this is really big. And we go, okay, so here's what we want to do. We want to get it to every parent in your club. And they go, ah, yeah, you know, I just don't think we have the budget for that. And, we, and we've been going, what is keeping people from heading down a road we all need to go we all know that and I think that um, not to get too I don't want to get too woo woo on you but but I think there's an evolutionary idea to it Mm. I think culture is evolving that we are and you see it kind of popping up and more athletes are talking about mental health right more I mean unfortunately the suffering is tends to be what moves us along you know the people the attrition rate in youth soccer is pretty intense right now Mm. we didn't make when we didn't make the world cup people started listening on a totally different level going what are we doing we threw all this money and we threw all this energy and we threw all this stuff why isn't it working and so people were going you know they were willing to listen to new ideas and it was heading in a new direction um and then you get some champions and people start talking about it real loud and then once they i don't know there is an evolutionary idea to it and i've been telling pat for a while going let's just be patient let's just keep talking that's like one of our business models just just keep talking and as people resonate you know, you know, it starts to change. And so then you get, I mean, we're testing it in Garden City where, you, where you've got a couple hundred parents right now going through the guidebook and having experiences and they're writing us emails and we're getting long emails about this is changing our lives, you know? And uh, so I think, I think that the culture maybe, think of it like a garden, maybe the garden's fertile enough now for yeah. it to start growing, for us to get healthier as a group. So you said you have kids. I do. Are they of playing sports age yet? Well, my son just turned six yesterday. Okay, and so my, in many people's worlds, he would be. Yes, and my daughter's seven and a half. Uh-huh. And my daughter is a freak, freaky athlete, okay? But <laughs> we adopted her, okay. and her parents were like, her dad played tight end at Washington State University. Like her. She's, <laughs> she's a, but, but we have decided that we are going to keep them out of organized team sports till they're 12. Mm-hmm. And, but now we, we still get them, and we're going to do sports, but it's going to be things where um, we remove that team element, we remove that 
parent love is on the sideline element. So things like snowboarding, uh, rock climbing, we do, we do some rock climbing, we do a ton of hiking. Um, you know, there's like my sons, you know, they, they do, like, we do soccer camps, like their favorite thing in the world. We go to this soccer camp called Red Wine Soccer Camp in the summer uh, and they just love it because it's a camp where everybody just plays. It's just camp games. And they, but it's like, they get so psyched about soccer camp and it remains a game. And my son, and we have a soccer ball. We have three soccer balls in the living room at all times, just sitting on the floor. Yeah. And my son, I just watch. I see out of the corner of my eye. My son just dribbling around the mm-hmm. couch, and I don't ever tell him what to do, and I don't cheer it or not cheer it. And That's a little awesome. spontaneous game will break out in the living room. <laughs> That's awesome. You know. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, all right, and then it seems like parent drama of some some kind is unavoidable in sport, unless at least in organized sports. Would you agree with that? I'd see, I think maybe in a thousand years from now, we might be there, you know, <laughs> we might be like all little Buddhas on the sideline, you know. In 2020, we'll say it's maybe unavoidable. Yeah, yeah. Um, given that, um, do you have a couple of tips in dealing with parent drama? Or to how to Who am I giving the tips to? Am I giving it to coaches, players, parents? Maybe you can give a couple different angles. It's up, yeah. it's up to you. If you're a parent, let's just say you're a mom and you were looking for a tip, how do I, how do I deal with that stuff inside of me? I would say, well, one, read my book, go through on frame, um, and do it, do it patiently and intentionally. But the biggest thing is the, the first thing, first step to health for any human being is learning to observe yourself. So if you can come to the point where instead of being the yeller, you can observe your yelling mm-hmm. and you can go, why do I, why do I yell like that? Instead of having that intensity in your body and just acting out of it, you can learn to observe the intensity in your body. Like one of the exercises we have in there is called the Watcher, okay. and where the next three sporting events you're going to go to for your child, you're not allowed to speak, and you, you, you go through a meditative process where you're observing your body's experiences, like mm. what sensations are coming up, what, what do you feel in your chest, what do you feel in your stomach. If you can learn to observe yourself and then observe the other parents as well. Like I was at a sideline, I went on a sideline just the other night to watch a player that I'm working with because I was curious about this sideline environment. And I just sit and I just, I listen and I feel mm-hmm. and, I, and I watch her body language as it relates to that. And I can see all that. If we can learn to observe that way, um, we can have a way better experience. Mm-hmm. And parents can find freedom because it's a burden for them too. They're unconscious of it, but they're suffering. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're over there suffering because their heart just jumped out of their chest and is running around with cleats on and they're trying to control it all. So they'll be okay. And what if they could just be free of that? Yeah. And I, you know, I try to conceptualize the love that a parent has for yeah. a kid. And it's crazy because I know that I can't. Like, yeah. I literally don't get it. Do you have an animal? <laughs> yeah, I have dogs. Okay. Is it's, it like one one hundredth of that? It's, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> I, I'd say maybe one seventieth, depending on the dog you have, right? <laughs> but yeah. like, it's the same kind. What, what's unique about parenting is, is it's a different kind of love. It's, it's way more intense, yes, but it's also new. It's not like the love you have for a boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, whatever. It's, it's, it is just a totally different kind of love. But the dog love is the same kind, just not nearly as intense. Mm-hmm. So you have to take that times it by multiples, and then, you, and then you've got it. So I think so much of what, what's at the core when, a, when there is a parent outburst is all of it is you want the best for your kid, right? Yeah, that yeah. is the kind of overlying or the, the thread that runs through. Well, that's the, the story your ego creates. Right? Okay, okay. Your ego creates, I want the best for my child. But of course what you're doing is not the best for your child at all. Mm-hmm. Right? The best is you just go home and leave them alone. You know? That's the best for their child when it comes to this stuff. Right. Right? But 
but our egos paint these different narratives, but ultimately so that we can kind of deal with what we're experiencing mm-hmm. and justify or reason with it, you yeah. know? But um, yeah, ultimately what we're doing is definitely not what's best for them. <laughs> definitely not. So you mentioned kind of for that parent that has this stuff going on within them, and then what if you're, deal- what if you're on a team with parents? You're not necessarily sure. the toxic parent, quote unquote toxic parent. Yeah, what I if hope not. <laughs> that would be terrible, wouldn't it? <laughs> what if you're dealing with um, those or they're in yeah. your, your circle? Well, you know, it, all change that you want to affect in the world starts with you have to, you have to completely, you have to change yourself first, mm-hmm. right? So if there's any parents going, yeah, I've got, I'm waking up to these ideas, you know, and, but I've got, you know, 10 soccer parents around me, they're horrible. Well, the, the whole thing is it's, it's first about that transformation within yourself and then starting to introduce it in, in ways that it looks more like, rather, rather than being a street preacher, you know, what you want to look like is more like a lighthouse. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You stand there and you just shine. Mm-hmm. And I think that people tend to, I, I'll give an example, actually. There was this, uh, this team, it's a club called Gunners out where, I, where I'm from, Issaquah Gunners. And I was working with this 13-year-old girl who was having a hard time. She wasn't getting a lot of time. She was struggling. I started working with her anxiety stuff, and she starts changing. And within three months or so, two months actually, she was, they couldn't keep her off the field. She's just rocking it, and she's having fun. And mom's learning a ton, okay? So they're like, whoa, and they're learning to step back. And of course, the other parents start noticing. And so then another girl comes, and then another girl comes. And and there's this, like, everybody's kind of noticing. And, And in that way, it tends to have it's almost, I mean, we can get into the quantum physics of it, mm-hmm. to be honest. Like, it's, it's a vibrational effect. You know, high vibes tend to create high vibes. Mm-hmm. Just like low vibes tend to create low vibes. So your, your job is always to completely transform yourself first and then see what comes from it. Um, and then what were the other angles we were talking about or uh, people that we're thinking about and tips we could give? You are saying parent oh, and then coach. The coaches and players, yeah. Yeah, I mean, do you get players listening to your podcast? Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Or the current ones so that they can prepare for retirement. Nice. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, when it comes to players, man, players have to do, especially the older, the older they get, right around 12, 13, 14, it becomes necessary to start to speak your truth to your parents. That if something hurts, you got to say it. You know, um, very few kids know how to do it because they're earning their love, and that's all that matters. But I've had you know, a lot of the athletes I've worked with, I've taught them how to slowly begin to be able to go to mom and dad and go, hey, mom, can I talk to you? when you do this it hurts now there's exercises in the guidebook that I have that uh, that actually leads that a little bit where a parent gets to interview their kid Mm -hmm. and ask them hey what do I what are some of the things I say that that make you feel loved what are some of the things I say that maybe hurt you you know things like that and they just interview their kid and write down the answers (laughs) and I've had some shocking testimonials come out of that which is always amazing but um, if if kids begin to speak their truth and take ownership of the space they need. It's got to be their space. Um, that's really, really helpful. When it comes to, when it comes to coaches, you know, th- that's one of the problems too. Is that coaches want the parents to wake up, but they don't necessarily want to wake up themselves. You know. And so I also created a companion for coaches called the Coaching Revolution. Right. It's the same thing. It's about creating that type of emotional health so that we coaches can know how to do it. And and the good ones, the good coaches, what they end up doing is just caretaking. I'm a, I can do it. I can fix everybody. I can help everybody. I can talk to every parent. I can, and they become the ones that everybody loves that coach. Mm-hmm. But the problem is when he gets home to his own children, he's completely drained mm-hmm. and he burns out fast mm-hmm. because you can't give it every, everything yet. They have to wake themselves up. You, like you were saying, it sounds like the coach, the mindset the coach is coming with into coaching really 
can set the tone of sideline culture, right? You were saying if you know if they aren't necessarily in coaching for the right reasons, right. that that can yeah. really. Well, and I would say that's the overwhelming majority of coaches. They like coaching, but they're unaware of their unconscious mm -hmm. attachment to mm -hmm. the game and how the game is right. about it, their identity is still caught in that space, and it's about earning love. And it, coaching becomes really difficult when you do that because you don't have control that you had as a player, <laughs> right? Well, you know? It's a nightmare. <laughs> oh, it's so difficult. And it's team sports in general hard because you, don't, you can't control your teammates. And you can't, but as a coach, you have no control. The second that whistle blows, you're just right. over there going, I guess I have to trust that these kids will get the love I need for me, you know? Mm -hmm. And if they don't, I had a game when I was coaching once, this is 10 years ago, where we got we outshot the team 29 to one in a state tournament game and lost 1-0. And I lost my mind. Understandably. <laughs> well, what's funny is when I think back to the level of intensity that I brought to that mm -hmm. explosion, it was because there was, there was these younger parts of me that were just like, how am I supposed to get love? You know what I mean? Right. I, I, like, you, your, your job is to get me the thumb that I need, and you're not doing it. <laughs> you, know? you know? And instead, I dress it up in stupid language, like, you don't want it enough, or all that kind of garbage. Right. And instead of going, they're kids. They're doing the best they can, and they're, off, they're just trying to survive out here, you know? No, it's so, so easy to get in that emotional red zone, and all of that goes out the window. Oh, man. And, and so few coaches have any understanding of why they do that, mm -hmm. and why they feel that, and why they experience that, and why they play favorites, or why they blame, or why they... You know, the drama, the drama comes from an unconscious place. We're all icebergs, you know, a little bit on the top and this huge thing yeah. underneath the surface. Yeah. You know? Seth, this is all I have for you. Yeah. This is all the questions I have. <laughs> this is a lovely conversation. Yeah, thank you I for really, having really me. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, and excited to attend your session tomorrow. Thank you to Seth Taylor for coming on to the podcast. If you want to learn about how you can get Taylor's book, On Frame, Go to runalongpodcast.com and click additional materials. Other than that, thanks for listening. Hope to see you next time.